Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 191. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey Nick, how's it going? Hey John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. That's right, smash that subscribe button. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, out of the gate, I just wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is now live. That's the knowledge graph and uh, connected notes site that we created. Well, I guess in the last episode, we described um, the process of writing our notes in a more connected way using Obsidian and uh, how this is a process that we're using to show our work. So all of the work that we do for notes and and doing uh, conference sessions, uh, it's all there. It's all a little bit more connected than our primary site, nerdjourney.com, nerd-journey.com. Um, and you can actually flip back and forth between the two and uh, see exactly what it is that we're talking about. At any rate, uh, we're happy to have you explore that second site, graph.nerd-journey.com. Um, and even uh, leave us some feedback. Tweet at us if it's something that's interesting. You can actually uh, sign into GitHub and uh, submit some some edits if uh, that's your type of thing. We'd uh, definitely welcome them. That's the news about our secondary site, graph.nerd-journey.com. But uh, let's talk about this actual episode, Nick. Uh, we have uh, Brett Hill on this week, right? We do. And it's going to be something crazy different than our normal format. It's going to be a two-parter. Ooh, yeah, that's uh, not something we usually do. Yeah. So this week will be part one, and you'll find when you listen a few things. Brett was an early tinker who was interested in how things work. You'll see how that permeated throughout his career. He's ridden a number of technology waves similar to other guests, including catching the PC wave early on, before it was a thing, really. Listen carefully for the story of Brett developing his initial expertise in a specific technology and how you might be able to do the same thing. He also gives some great tips on how you might find what your niche area to specialize or develop expertise in. It could be. And he's going to talk about scaling on a number of different levels, and I'm not really going to say anything else about that one. Without further ado, let's kick it off with part one of our discussion with Brett Hill. Brett Hill, thanks so much for joining us on Nerd Journey today. Oh, you bet. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please? Sure. Um, I am a coach uh, these days, and I'm teaching coaches. I'm a coach's coach, uh, helping them learn to be more mindful and present in their sessions with people and uh, communication skills, presence, and some very specific somatic techniques to help 
their clients along on their journey. Oh, wow. Sounds like some great training we could all use. But it actually, it didn't start off that way, right, Brett? You actually started off in tech, right? That's right. Yeah, I had a long career in tech. I sure did. How'd that get started? I think I read something about you owning your own business and doing training for Internet Information Services several years ago. Oh, yeah, that's quite a while back. It was my originally um, got started doing technical training in the Microsoft stack. I just decided it was sort of like almost a coin toss, you know, Linux, Microsoft, Linux, Microsoft. This was back in the day before Microsoft was, they were big, but they weren't like big, you know, like they are now. And the sure. whole notion of enterprise technology being what it is today, it, it didn't exist. It was being, it was being created um, at that time. And I remember a friend of mine gave me a, a disk that had on it, like, you know, a Windows server. I thought, what's a server? You know, I'm going, I, I didn't know. I, I was pretty good with computers because I had uh, started programming computers when I had some uh, retail computer stores when I was in my early 20s. And then when they got really serious and you could actually begin to do basic programming, this is actually even before the IBM PC, because I'm an older character, then I knew what was going on with them because I had been working with them before they became a thing. And so when people started buying them uh, like crazy, I was one of the only guys around who knew anything about them. And so one thing led to another and I wound up getting out of the record business and got hired by a computer store. And they sent me to an Apple II school to learn how to, to repair apples. And I became a manager for some computer stores in the service technology business. So I was repairing computers, apples, way back in the day. And that led to IBM repairs. And I eventually got hired by a company called Compact. And I was national technical support manager for a division of them. For them. They invented a thing called the Telecompact, way ahead of its time. It didn't take off, but it was a ton of fun. And I learned so much. After that, it became clear that, you know, PCs were going to be a real thing and business was going to be a major factor. And Microsoft became a really big player and I decided to study them. And when I looked around the lay of the land, I looked at what was going on with server technology. And there was nobody who was really specializing in web server stuff because the internet was not quite what it is today. It was still emerging technology. And so no one was... In fact, your listeners might appreciate that. There was a time when Microsoft had a naming system for discovering computers on the network called WINS, W-I-N-S. And it stands for Windows Internet Naming Service. They actually thought that they were going to be the, D, the DNS of the internet. You know, so they, they, oh, they, wow. they, that all the computers were going to report to Windows and Windows was going to say, oh, here's your name. Because it's very much the same sort of technology where they're just a broadcast on the internet and hey i don't have a, an ip address can you give me one and it would issue them ip addresses that was a thing you had to, to learn if you were going to teach it so i decided to be an expert in web server technology uh, and that's how i got started with my microsoft career 
So I want to go back to the very beginning of what you said. You said you got out of the record business. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that? I did not know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, this was back in the day when there were vinyl record stores, you know, and you could go to a vinyl record store and buy records. And um, I wound up owning, through a series of strange events, five used record stores, used record stores. And I was like in my mid-20s, man, I was having a great time. And we were doing concerts, selling tickets to concerts, and we were having a blast uh, running these record stores. So I was, you know, living a, a twenty mid-20-somethings dream in a way, you know. It was really a, a fun time. And then when computers came out, I thought, uh, I began to see like these gigantic, really basic, simple computers. I'm going, can you program those? And I actually wrote a point of sale system for my computers way before anything had ever been done like that. And I, so I had, I had everybody coding these records with codes and entering their codes and tracking the inventory, all kinds of stuff way back in the day. I had no idea what I had. I didn't, think, oh, I invented a genre here, you know, that never even occurred to me. It was just like, this is cool. (laughs) Oh, wow. So early business ownership experience, managing inventory, sales experience, and tinkering with technology, what we would call your experience, I guess, is kind of being on the edge of a technology wave and riding it. So you got in... A little early, and mm-hmm. we're able to ride that and really dive deep because you could tell that the technology was going to be big. That's a that's a pattern we're seeing with some other guests who've got into different technological waves at the right time, and you know, over the course of their career, they've ridden multiple of those. There have been quite a few of those big crests, and there's there's quite a few happening now, you know, that are coming at us. Oh, yeah. I, I sort of always consider myself a little bit of a futurist, you know, like being able to kind of look ahead and see what's going to be big. And, you know, I'm in an age now where I can't get on that horse and ride it for the next 10 years, 15 years, but I can certainly tell you what race is going to be interesting. And it's a, it's a ton of fun. I've had a really, really interesting background in terms of technology I've done a lot of a lot of fun stuff now when you started doing the the computer repairs and such it seems like that was something that was fun you enjoyed doing it had you tinkered before when you were younger with anything mechanical or was this kind of a new thing no I was always really interested in how things work I was always putting things together like uh, I'll give you an example I one time I rewired our living room and I was, I must have been like 10. And I, I rewired our living room with, so that when I had these little mechanical tanks and they would trip over a piece of aluminum foil and the lights would go on in the room. And that was the most fun thing ever for me. You know, So I'm like taking That's apart great. the wiring and then you know, I was always sort of a, I like to assemble, you might call it like childhood architecture, toy architecture. I, I would take the room and, integrate with my toys you know it's kind of like that kind of stuff it was really fun for me yeah that does sound fun so when you decide to become an expert at something tell me about that deliberate practice that one has to do to really go deep and and be and have the expertise to be you know well known for example 
Well, that's a really great question because it was a very deliberative process on my part. I don't know how I learned to do this, but I had sort of the lay of the land in terms of, okay, here's the tech, right? There's this and there's this. And I look out and I go, who's got a footprint in these various techs? And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, I want to be an expert. I want to be known as an expert in a certain field. And I can choose any field I want, right? I'm just... You know, like you, you if you decided to do this or anyone, they could say, I want to be AI. I want to do, you know, uh, these sure. days, you know, I want to do game design. I want to do whatever it is you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, robotics, whatever VR. There's so many cool stuff, so many cool ways to go. But back in, in the day, there wasn't that many choices. So I was looking around and there were already well-known voices in particular fields like Microsoft Exchange Server, some of the general and Windows clients systems, there were already some very well-known names in those things. And when I looked at, uh, I was a teacher, I was a Microsoft certified teacher, and I was teaching this uh, class on internet information services, and it was terrible. The class was awful. Well, because I had a background in teaching, my degree was in interpersonal communication with a certificate in secondary education. So I, I had a footprint in education. I had always been a public speaker, an actor, and a musician in high school and college as well. And so I was kind of well-suited to kind of step in and take this really crappy course and make it interesting. And so I, that's what a good teacher does, right? You take the subject and you turn it, you make it alive for people. And, I, and people really responded to it. And I started to get sort of a name for being able to teach this particular class. And so, and I looked around and go, nobody is the voice for this product or this particular expertise. So I said, so I'm going to own it. And I just, so I just, I found every piece of information I could find about that particular product. Now, keep in mind, I didn't have any practical experience in terms of going into a company and making it work for them. This was all Here's the product, install it on my computer, figure out how it works, hook up some devices, look at the network, see what the errors happen. What does this button do? Does it do what it says it does? And you know what? It turns out a lot of times it didn't do what it said it would do. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah, imagine that, right? And so I kind of hung my hat on, I won't tell you that it's so unless I've tried it. And that became really valuable information because I would be a voice that would say, oh, yeah, you see this page? And I actually used to teach this in a course that I wrote for IIS. I would say, see this page in the Internet Information Services UI? Don't use anything on it because nothing on it works. And I could prove that it didn't work. And I would and I would talk about how things would, would work. And enterprises were very, very interested in that. So I wound up uh, at one point, I said, okay, I'm going to just write my own course and start teaching this. And I got hired by Fortune 100 companies, by 500 companies all over the country to come out and teach them in real time, their engineers and their admins, how this works. And the incredible thing about that is that suddenly I'm in the, the belly of the beast, so to speak. So you go into these giant insurance companies and automobile manufacturers, names we've all heard. And they, and they would come up on the whiteboard and say, here's our architecture. Here's how we do it. Well, now, they're not going to tell that to just anybody. But suddenly, right. I'm getting the whiteboard graphic explanation of what they're doing, what their problems are from the top 20 insurance companies in the world. I'm probably the only guy on the planet who knows that. 
One of the few, probably. Well, one of them, if there are very many, in terms of like, what are they all doing, right? How are they all going? How are they architecting this stuff? And what's working for them and what isn't? And so I would synthesize these in terms of best practices and turn that into training. And it worked, it worked out really well. Yeah. One of the best ways to show your expertise or knowledge is to teach it back to somebody else. And it sounds like that might have been the best path to getting notoriety or recognition as an expert at the time. How did you end up finding out about the opportunity to be a course instructor for these companies? Well, what I did was um, publish. I had a, a website called IIS Answers, and I published all kinds of stuff. And um, because nobody was publishing on it, it was easy to find. And so I became a, a top search result for FAQs because I would take the FAQs and I would just, this is one of my advices to, to your listeners, if they're interested in becoming well-known and expertise, find the FAQs and write articles on them, put it on a website that's not full of, of fluff, but just really hardcore, useful, practical, tested information that you know is right, and make it easily digestible so that when someone types in that FAQ, there's a good chance it comes to your place and they go, oh, you know, this Brett guy, I can really rely on what he has because he knows what he's talking about. And so I, it was a, not as crowded as the field as it is today. But there are still lots of places to hang your hat. And so that's what I did, and it worked, worked really well. And I pivoted a little bit later to from IIS to Office 365. Well, and there's a whole story about that, too. So, But still, it was the same formula. Real quick, before we go there, uh, what if I'm somebody who feels like they don't have that specialty in one area? Any suggestions on how someone can decide what to specialize in? You know, I know we know you got to kind of look at the tech waves, but any other piece of the framework that we might be leaving out? Well, you have to start with what you like and then what you know, right? And so what are you good at? And I was really good. And I kind of always have been good at like, you know, like I said, I like to take things apart. I like to tinker. I like to test. I like to set up my own little lab and see how things work. And when you can do that, and you can also explain it well, that's the other part of it. It's not just knowing the tech, you have to make it relatable. And that's a skill set that not everybody has. And so if you don't have that that particular part, and I'm not, it's, it's no, no harm, no foul if you don't, then you might not be well suited for a public facing role like what I was doing. Instead, you might be great at you know, being uh, an engineer doing troubleshooting for Rackspace or somebody who's got a gigantic amount of servers and they need people they can work on. And if you're, you know, good at that stuff, you, you know, you can you can have a job. Virtual, you know, virtual systems, deploying them, figuring out what's working, what isn't. It's, it's as, you, as your readers know, or your listeners know, it's complicated. And so when you own a niche, you can really dive in and demonstrate confidence there. That has value. You just have to decide what do you what do you like? What do you see yourself doing? Do you like wiring stuff together, or do you like taking it apart? Do you like putting? Do you like the architecture pieces? Like let's get this service to work with this service, or do you like writing the bits that wire things up? There's nothing you don't like anything more than writing the code that creates the, the class libraries that instantiate the 
you know, the authentication that create the connection and keep it alive. And, or maybe you're a Wireshark person and you like to get into the TCP IP troubleshooting. Talk about a skill that has value. That's a super valuable skill. Network oh, yeah. Troubleshooting. So you mentioned that you also shifted your focus to Office 365. Is that how you eventually got hired on by Microsoft? No, actually, before then, I had uh, gotten the attention of Microsoft because of all my IIS content. And so I became, I don't know, I don't want to like toot my own horn, but I, I kind of became a, you know, a small mini celebrity in a way. And I got invited to tech conferences. And I was speaking with people like Mark Rasanovich, who's now the senior VP at Microsoft, and a whole bunch of folks, uh, Don Jones, uh, who's a VP at Pluralsight. Well, those guys, I was at conferences doing uh, talks with them, and my slot was IIS, and they were doing their pieces, right? So, so I was traveling a lot, doing presentations, writing a lot, and then, uh, and I was awarded the MV, Microsoft's MVP, I think four times in a row, five times in a row for IIS. And then one day, I got a phone call from Bill Staples. Now he's now the CEO of New Relic, but at the time he was the program manager for IIS. And he said, do you want to come to work for Microsoft as the technical evangelist for IIS? Just straight up, you know, no interview. Wow. No, and so he, and he offered me the job just right on the phone. And I thought about it for a minute and I said, yes. So I walked away from my IIS training business and went to work for Microsoft. And that, I moved to Redmond and took the job. I started a whole nother branch of my career. Now, instead of doing my own training, I'm doing Microsoft's training. And the, the real ironic part is that I wrote the next IIS class, the, the one that was so crappy. I personally wrote the next one. <laughs> nice. Hey, making an impact. I like it. You get to write it the way you want to. That's right. It actually won awards for being one of the best. And it was really fun to hear that. Like eight years later, I, I ran into the guy who was in charge of me. He said, you know, that class. And I really, and I'm telling you, I had to fight for some of the stuff. I had to really fight for it to get it right. It was fun. Yeah. I, I don't think people probably realize how much time it takes to prepare a course that you're going to teach to someone, whether it's in person or, you know, now you can record it on Pluralsight and be a, an instructor that way. Any insight for listeners like, hey, I, I want to show my expertise on, and build a course. What kind of effort does that really take? Well, it takes quite a bit of work, and the key is always the labs, right? It's always the labs, because I can talk a lot about authentication or how you deploy your servers up and down the stack so that they're secure, but um, talking gives people ideas, but they have to do it to make it real. And so it's the labs that take all the prep. Strangely enough, these days, it's a lot easier because we have virtual machines, right? And so you can spin up a virtual machine that's in a pristine state and then have people do the labs. And when you're done, you just deploy a new virtual machine and you're done. Or you don't, or you don't save it to persistent disks and it just re returns back to its original state. Uh, when I was doing them, those things didn't exist. And so it's kind of like it, became, it was a lot harder. But still, it takes a lot of work to get it right, to make sure that it works every time. Because you get 20 people in a room they're going to do the same thing 20 different ways. It's really crazy how that works. So you have to be overly precise in your language and very patient with people. 
because people learn things differently. So there's a, a teaching talent here that you have to have some capacity to help people learn in ways that you don't in order to be a good teacher. Yeah. And part of it is also, it sounds like you were very good at this, meeting that learner where they are. Exactly. So they may not have the same foundation of knowledge as somebody else. Right. You've got people who've, you tell them, I'll, t I'll tell you, I haven't said this in a long time, but in my training that I wrote, I had to say things like, enter your computer name where your computer name is the name of your computer. And, because otherwise people would type in your computer name. Right. I could see that. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you, I really have to spell this out every time in every lab and every, and the answer to that is yes. I did have to. So it, that kind of thing just drove me nuts, but it was what was necessary to make it work. Because you get people in there, they don't know what they're doing. They're right. going to take you literally. They're just going to robotically enter things. You're the guru. Yeah, that's how they learn. I love it. Now, you took the role at Microsoft and gave up your business. How about that transition from owning and operating a business? Actually, you had owned and operated a business before with the record stores. Exactly, yeah. And so now you're working for the big machine. Mm -hmm. Was that... Tell me about the adjustment period there, if there was one. Was it hard to get used to that? There was a really big one. This is very hard to communicate to people who haven't had a job in a gigantic company that is super rich. It's really hard to talk about the scale of things because people don't comprehend the size of what people are doing. So, for example, I was doing a, uh, a training. They said, well, Brett, we want you to do to write a class that we can take and train hosters, hosting the world of hosters, because they are big consumers of web, ser of web servers, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and so Microsoft has a vested interest in those hosters knowing about what the latest technology is. And I said, okay, great. And so I started to work and, then, and, I, and other people were helping to organize the logistics. And then I said, so how's this class gonna work? Like who's gonna take it well? It's going to be in 24 cities around the world. And I'm going, well, what, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, we're going to train about 2,000 people. And it has a budget of about $1.4 million. You know, and I'm, hey, I was teaching 20 people in a room. And suddenly, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm on a multi-million dollar project, you know. And it's it takes some time to get your head around <laughs> the size of this stuff. It's hard to think big enough is, is a problem with these companies like Microsoft and other large companies. They really relish people who are willing to take big chances because people just don't think big enough. Maybe a little imposter syndrome at the same time? For me, I never had that. Oh, that's good. I, I, I don't know why. I probably, by all rights, probably should have. But I always somehow felt like I was up to the task. It was always just a matter of, oh, I just need to adjust my mindset. No problem. I just need to adapt. I like that. So it sounds like you were doing the training, do, planning the courses on a much larger scale here. Was there also a certain number of speaking engagements at conferences that you had to maintain as part of this too? Well, that wasn't a, um, um, a requirement in terms of you must speak, but it was just a natural part of my job because I held the role of the worldwide IIS evangelist for Microsoft. 
And so I was invited to speak at a lot of conferences and Microsoft conferences and events. And so I would be participating in presenting technical information to people about, oh, here's what's coming and here's why it matters. Here's what, and, and, and I was always relying on my chops for like doing the demos. This is where those, the, having that training background really helped. Cause like, okay, I'm gonna show them how this works and make it real. And that really came into play uh, and was, was very helpful because I, I, I established sort of a, a reputation for building presentations that had some, quite a few live components in them. Like we're going to show people how this works and make it real. And it was important and risky and hard. It's hard to do that in presentations. Yeah. The live demo is always one of those things where you cross your fingers and and you checked it beforehand and hope it works again in front of all the people, right? Yeah, and you have a backup ready to go in case it doesn't. You know, I have a video in my pocket in case, you know, on, on the D drive, right? So I was, or you know, wherever it is, I've already got, I've got one ready to go in case where you lose your network connection or whatever. Who knows? Lots of weird stuff happens. You, you never know about that. Yeah, for sure. We're actually recording this right after VMware's annual conference that I attended. So I have to ask... What tips do you have for the would-be presenter out there? Like I'm going back to conference presenting or maybe even doing some remote presenting. Since we're on the topic, any tips there? A bazillion. We have another hour. (laughs) We got lots of time. The thing you have to remember about presenting is this is sliding a little sideways into my mindfulness stuff. You need to pay attention to the audience while you're talking. And that means making eye contact and speaking to them like you were across a coffee table, making it, making it conversational and making it personal. I don't mean like that's personal, but I mean like, why does this matter to you? Here's why what I'm talking about matters to you. It's not, hey, look at this new widget. It's like this widget is going to help you in your job. And here's how I know that. Let me show you. And you're going to reel them in that way. And as long as you don't, as long as you deliver on that, they're going to like your presentation. And that means you have to be confident in your message and your your chops, so to speak. You have to know what you're talking about. And so I see a lot of people fall apart who do good presentations, but they don't take questions well because audiences can really, they can be confrontational. They can be uh, sideways. You can get all kinds of weird questions. So you have to have some practice with, dealing with unexpected scenarios. And that's where this mindfulness practice can be very helpful for a presenter. You're just grounded in your presence and your capacity to just be present with somebody. And you see they're unhappy about something maybe, and they're, well, you said that, and I'm telling you that that doesn't work. It matters to you. Huh? Yeah, it matters to me because I, I get it. I hear what you're saying. You know, and, and, and what you say specifically can vary a lot depending on the circumstances. But you don't want it to sidetrack you so important. Don't want it to take you off your message or off your, your game. So you just let them have their thing and you can, and say, I'll deal, you know, we can talk afterwards. I can see one thing is just a valid. I can see how that could be a problem in certain circumstances. We really don't have time to get into this here, but I'd love to talk to you about it after this is over. So you, you want to connect, make them your ally if you can, and then move on. <laughs> get the spotlight off them. Because they'll, they'll hog it if they can. Right. Keeps you from going down a rat hole. Yeah. If you get somebody who's, uh, once the spotlight gets on them, they don't want to let go of the microphone. 
you've got to take it from them gracefully. And sometimes if you, if you have to, ungracefully, you know, with force. I don't mean like, get that out of your hand, but it's more like, we need to move on now. So I appreciate what you're saying, but we just, we, we, we need to move on and just move it along. You're, you're in charge. You've got, the, you're the boss. Own it. Yeah. Own it. I like that. Is it harder to own it when you're doing a presentation remotely versus in person, you think? A little bit because you don't have the authority of the stage. Stages have incredible authority. You're higher than everybody else. You're looking out over the audience. They're there in their seats looking at you. You're not on a screen full of a thousand other faces. So there's there's an equality factor in the fact that my box is the same size as everybody else's box on the screen. And so you don't have the same sort of mojo. And so it's a different sort of, it's a different kind of context. That's a intelligent question, really intelligent question. And how about amount of times one should practice the presentation? You practice till you feel really comfortable about it. And you practice till when you feel yourself getting nervous, you reference your memory and you go, I got this. I know I got this. Now, sometimes that's not the first time. Uh, I did my IIS training 100, 200 times. And it wasn't until I did it about 20 times that I began to realize there's a rate and rhythm here that really works if I can just stick with it and rely on that. Because I know then day two of this training, the thing I'm talking about now is really going to lock in. So I'm not going to try to like make it stick right now because it won't stick until they get this other piece, which we're not going to do until later. But that's kind of more of an advanced idea. When you're doing an hour-long presentation in front of a group, you can stage stuff like that. And it's a big deal what you can do. It's almost like a reveal when you go, now remember that thing that I talked to you about earlier? This is where it really pays off. Because you can see now how that becomes amplified to be X, Y, Z. If you can do that kind of thing, audiences really appreciate it because they feel like you're you're taking them on a hero's journey in a way. Yeah, I really like that. I've heard things like part of the brain science of if I practice my presentation in the same room where I'm going to give the presentation, it'll actually help me remember it better. Yeah, that's true. Even smells and, and things like that are supposed to contribute to your overall memory. What you don't want to happen is to not know whether you're going to be able to access your PowerPoint notes until the day of the presentation. Right. That's why I always have some kind of a backup. I reached a point at some point more in my career. I didn't need notes, you know. I used my my PowerPoint as the notes. So I would my my bullets were points that would remind me of what I need to talk about. And so if I always lost track, my notes, my PowerPoint, what kept me on 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 the flow. And so I would put my notes in there, and I'd put notes in my on my PowerPoint that would be triggers for me to speak about something. So as long as I could see my deck. You know, usually when you're doing a presentation, you've got them right in front of you, and then they're behind you so the audience can see them. And sometimes they're on a monitor at the edge of the stage. As long as you can see that, then you can stay on point part of the time. Do you feel like your studies of interpersonal communication and some of the educational background and the teaching the courses, did, did that naturally lead you to be able to connect to audiences better? or more impactfully, or did you learn that later, just after experience? I'd say both and is the answer to that. It's like I was very 
remember how I talked about how I like to figure out how things work, right? Mm -hmm. Well, at some point or another, I turned the lens of that from outside to inside. How does the how does the operating system of Brett Hill work? What's my brain do? What are my emotions do? What are they about? When I get upset, what's really going on? Because I don't think what's going on is what's coming out of my mouth. I think it's deeper than that. And so I really, really turned inward to kind of get a lay of the land about the, if you will, the architecture of my inner topology. Like how does all that fire off and work? How's that? How's it? What's the wiring? And I began that inquiry in parallel with my career at uh, my technical career. So this whole time I'm doing technology, I'm also studying meditation, somatic psychotherapy, mindfulness, and some other things that are informing my capacity to be present with people in a way that wouldn't otherwise be possible in technical as well as personal conversations. And we'll keep going on that in a second. You continued at Microsoft and you went kind of from tech evangelist to partner technical readiness, right? Partner technical readiness manager for what became Office 365, which is now Microsoft 365. What exactly does that involve? Well, it involves, wow, well, back in the, back when this started, Microsoft, the transition, and you, you're you of a, of a generation where you've seen the transition from, hey, we're going to install this from CDs to I'm going to pay it on a monthly service, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, and also the birth of services that only exist in the cloud. Now, it used right. to be that when you subscribe to Microsoft licenses or other companies, you, you would get a stack of CDs or DVDs that were like, here's the servers, here's SharePoint, here's Exchange Server. And that was the way they distributed stuff. And now it's all online. Well, that is a transition that's happened in the last, since 2000, wholesale transition. Well, it used to be that Microsoft Partners, which is the biggest partner technical partner network in the world, as far as I know, they were the ones that were out selling this stuff to all the businesses. So you're a company, you, you sell Microsoft goods, and uh, there weren't services at the time, just goods, right? Just licenses. And so a small business server, exchange server, SharePoint, whatever it is that you're, you're doing, you would go and you install them on computers at people's places, or you would host them, or you would hire, or you put them on Rackspace or VMware at the time and, and make them work for people. Well, Microsoft made a big change uh, back when Bollinger was still CEO to, be, to begin to focus on software as a service. And they shifted from like mail being something that you deliver from a server to purchasing it as a service, like the first one to happen because it was the most mature in terms of being a, a service, ready for a service. So my job as technical readiness manager for these services that were coming out was to train, produce content that told the world how these things worked, like how you actually would go in and use them, deploy them, and what they looked and acted like. So from a technical point of view, how do you migrate your mailboxes into the cloud? That was a big part of what we did. Now, <clears throat> there was a big political issue, and I mean business politics, because all the partners were used to selling on-premise servers. And now instead of selling $5,000 boxes with, computer, with software on them they were maintaining for four or $500 each per month, they're selling 
$25 mailboxes, they were not happy. I remember, for example, at a user group in Seattle area for um, partners, there was like somehow, I don't know how this happened. I was surrounded by Microsoft partners in a big open area. We were at some bar uh, in downtown Bellevue, maybe 60, 70 people in a circle. And I'm in the center of this circle. And they're peppering me with questions like, why is Microsoft making us you know, move to these services. We're not going to make any money. And we're not, you know, it's like they were unhappy. And let's see the message at the time, the whole industry was moving that way. And they just hadn't figured it out yet. And so they were very, very resistant to the message that software services is the future. And if you don't go there now, your competitor is going to. And so it's very rare these days, actually. It was not as rare as it should be, but you go into a business and they've got their servers in the closet. You know, and they're like paying somebody hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to maintain their land that's con- interconnected and they're doing shares locally. That's all so old school. They're still out there, but it's still very old school. But, th- but these businesses, they did want to make the transition. And my job was to show them how they could do that technically. Fortunately, I didn't have to deliver the Uber message, but I did get this one kind of corral situation and finally just said look either you're going to do it with microsoft or google's going to take them from you and that seemed to like really resonate they kind of got it that this is the way the world is going to be so we better adapt that was a big challenge for me because uh, you know i had come from working with iis which was a server service mm-hmm. and now i'm talking about in the cloud services so we're talking about cloud big cloud architecture that Microsoft hosts rather than being hosted on-premise. Gigantic, gigantic mind shift there. Yeah, people don't want to give up the control. They don't. And now I'm going, why Why would you ever want it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun being on both sides of that of that fence for sure. Yeah, because I mean, when you, when you look at the amount of tech that goes into the Microsoft data centers, which would you rather, would you have, would you rather have your mailbox on your, under your desk where the janitor can like knock it over and, and, and hopefully you have a current backup or would you rather have it in the Microsoft data center where there's six simultaneous live copies with failover data centers so that if San Francisco fell off into the earth, into the, into the ocean, it would fail over to an East coast data center and you might experience a minute outage or two. And I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the state of the art whenever I was there years ago. I will say that if you are a technologist and can help with a migration from the a little bit older school of thinking, right, to the more commoditized SaaS version of just Microsoft 365 these days, that's a nice career accelerator, nice resume builder. Like, I've done this migration, you know? Well, there's a lot of it. We're almost at the end of the migration phase these days. Because, like, to begin with, it's like, what are these services? Oh, well, we'll kick the tires. And they were early adopters. And so I was involved with a lot of those early adopters back in the day. Every, everybody in that process learns to, well, how should I say, that helps mature the services in a way where they scale better. You need a, You need a couple of big enterprises to step up and go, we'll take the chance because we see the future and we want to be a part. We want to be on the train, right? So they step up and they hook their mission up to this early. And there's a price to pay for that because sometimes things are a little wonky to begin with because 
the tech hasn't been hasn't experienced that kind of scale before. You reach a place of these data centers where, I mean, it used to be you could take an app and you could say, hey, let's get 20 people on it and see how it behaves. But how do you take an app and put 2 million people on it and see how it behaves? Right. You, you can't Very do different. It. So the whole notion of software testing became, well, instead of having beta testing, what we're going to do is we're going to, we, we still have beta testing, but what we do is we pick 2 million people at random, say, okay, the South of the United States, you're all going to beta test this, and we're going to push out these updates, and we'll see what happens. Take 2 million people and they're beta testing, and then you can roll it out in stage in stages so that that whole process eventually became the rings of deployment that is now microsoft 365 that enterprises can do that grew up in the microsoft enterprise evolutionary process they they began to realize oh we have to be able to contain these deployments so that they don't go out to everybody because that's disastrous when they don't work right so we're going to contain them and then and and we can't test them in a small scale they've got to be tested at scale because things just don't show up whenever you're doing 5,000 people that show up when you're doing a million people. They would get these, this notion of rings of deployment. And so they would deploy it and then they deploy it broader and then they would deploy it to everybody. And now Microsoft 365 is a situation where you can control what your enterprise gets, what gets pushed to your enterprise through these rings and you have some say Instead of Microsoft deciding that for you, now you get to control that and you get to roll your own stuff into those rings as well. So it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. So if I was hanging my hat on something these days, I might go there because that's very broadly applicable. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of analogous to what you're talking about with teaching classes of 20 some odd people and then having to figure out, okay, how do I do this for 26 different classes across the country and scale the curriculum, scale the processes. It's a similar thing with the technologies, the platforms and readiness for adoption at a very large scale. I, I see those as, as very much the same. Yeah. And this whole conversation started with how do you get your head around the scale of things? You know? Yeah. And that's, exactly. so this was all about the scale is, is unbelievable. <laughs> And people just don't know if you, if yeah. you, I was in, you know, privileged conversations at Microsoft where they talk about the, the scale of the, the stuff. It's off the hook. You can't even get your head around it. It's so big. People who have moved to those large organizations have learned through experience to, to think a little more at scale, but it's something that I feel like people have to develop. You're not just born with this ability to, to scale to 2 million users, as you said, right? No, you have to learn how to do that. You have to learn how to do it. And you have to understand that the issues are very different at that scale than they are, you know, in the engineering scrum meeting, you know, it's like really, really different. And you have to, when you deploy and things don't work because your authentication API is taking two seconds and it takes, you know, 10 seconds for this object to instantiate itself because it's hooked up to an outdated class. And that eight seconds is causing a ripple effect for everybody to get stacked up in the queue. And then the, and then the network system fails over. It looks like a network failure, but it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a software failure because the authentication isn't synced up with something else. Those kinds of things happen all the time. And they're very hard to, to diagnose. It takes a lot of skills. No doubt. Well, what I'm trying to diagnose, Brett, is is what makes someone 
put their business on hold, go to Microsoft, and then leave Microsoft to start a different business. Isn't that, <laughs> am I right that you, that that's, that was your path? Yeah, I, I wound up leaving Microsoft and I went to work for Riverbend. Uh, I was the principal technical marketing engineer for them for, for about five years. And that was a, another really great job. And boy, you talk tech and those guys are deep tech, really into the networking. And I, be, I was a network optimization specialist in a way, you know, like how do you reduce your bandwidth and how do you, because R Riverbed established their, their business model is really bandwidth optimization. They have a lot of other really cool stuff, but that's what they got started. And so I was the technical evangelist for that and cloud services. They had a, they had an optimization path for Microsoft 365, Office 365 at the top. And I was going all around talking about how that works and doing demos of that, that kind of thing. So a little bit adjacent to some of the, the work you had been doing, not a total 180. Okay. No. And, and the fun part about that is I got to have my own rack and I had my own <laughs> virtual machines and my own private rack and I got to do my own lab testing stuff. The engineering team would call me up and go, can you test optimization on migrating a mailbox to this? You know, I'd say, yeah, man. So I'd go in and create the VLANs and set it all up. And it was a total, total fun, you know, state of the art stuff. And it was really, really a blast. Right? So that, now I'm back. I'm like that kid, you know, wiring the tank up to the, it's like, yeah, this is totally fun, man. I've got pictures yeah. of me with all these, you know, racks going, yeah, this is like, I'm in the zone with my stuff. <laughs> you know, totally is the next iteration of that 10 year old kid. <laughs> I love it. For the for the technologist who is in IT operations today, let's say that systems administrator, how technical do they have to get to go into a field like technical marketing for a vendor? Well, that's a good question. Let's just say that there's levels of competence, right? So I became the principal technical marketing engineer, probably by virtue of the fact that I had all this Microsoft background and training background. And other people who were newer you know, they just didn't have that, that kind of range. And it's no fault of theirs. They were younger and they just were getting started. But the one thing that everybody did have is technical chops in some dimension, right? And so as a, if you're going to be in technical marketing, your job is to, is to do the very thing I mentioned earlier, is to make the technical content relevant to your audience, right? You want to make, it's got to resonate human to technology value. It's not about the features, it's about the impact. And if you can do that, you're going to be successful. It's just a matter of how deep does it go, right? Can you get out uh, a wire sniffer and figure out the TCP IP packets to figure out why the proxy certificate isn't uh, working for you? I don't know. I could do those kinds of things and they were really helpful to me which because I didn't have to depend on a lot of other people. So it was those things were part of the things that helped me, you know, how to become the principal. So the more competent you are technically, the more useful you are in a lot of different scenarios. So I became helpful not only to the customers, but to engineering, right? So I could come back to them and say, hey, here's a good idea. Why don't you guys try this? And they would take that and go, oh, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Or no, we, we have other priorities. But at least you could give them those kinds of feedback. Right. Kind of a bridge between customers and engineering in a way. Very much so. Marketing, customers, and engineering are kind of the, the, the three big things you have to deal with in technical marketing because you're an engineer, technical marketing engineer. So you're dealing with the raw pre-delivery bits usually. And so another thing I had to do or 
uh, well, I should say it was part of the thing, was setting up demo platforms. That becomes, so this goes back to my lab experience, right? My training experience, mm -hmm. how do you create demos at scale so that the entire company can do a demo of Office 365 acceleration using the services? Rather than just me, look, I created a platform that the whole company can do it. Um, so anybody who's on a demo, doing a demo in the world, say, let me show you how this works. And they don't have to call me up to do it for them. Right. So those are the kinds of things that you, you wind up doing as a technical marketing person. And then presentations, of course, as well. Right. And this goes back to what you were talking about before with the proof of work, writing about what you're doing. Because if you're building a lab environment, it's not just the building, right? Many people may have home labs that they're tinkering with and whatnot. But if you're building a lab for people to consume, you have to write the manual and the steps for consumption or some kind of guidance, right? Exactly. Yeah. You've got to show them here I'm back, you know, enter the computer name where this the computer name is you know, it's like you have to do that for the salespeople now, right? It's kinda of like click on this and you take my number one advice, take a lot of snapshots of stuff that you want people to do. Now the downside to that is if the UI changes, you're outdated. But the good news is people will understand what you want them to do because you're showing them. So it's a catch-22, but I always put a lot of graphics in my stuff, and people are a lot less confused about it. The downside is you have to update it more frequently. But there's this a trade-off. That's just where I fell on the trade And I've seen a lot of tech training that's just text. When you get to this, click here, click that. Click. And, you know, it's efficient, but it's it's just not my style. But I'm old school. I like the visual representation, too. Some people really resonate with that more so than just just the written word. It's a, it's a double connection. So let's go back to that mindfulness practice you mentioned earlier, Brett. Very cool, Nick. This might just be recency bias, but the thing that I'm thinking about right now is the different ways that demo labs were used over time and how incredibly difficult it was to do, you know, a, a person, a, a class for 20 people when you have to manually set up the labs. It just, it's mind boggling, you know, just to think about like the automation technology involved even like maybe pre-automation where you have to manually set up each machine and then slowly over time, like, oh, okay, you clone an environment to each machine and then, the you know, going virtual. And yeah, anyway, that just popped into my mind as Brett was talking about, you know, labs, the d doing demos a second time. I also like wanted to say that the scaling was like another thing. It's interesting that you were calling it out in the intro um, just to, Oh yeah, it actually reminded me that I wasn't I wasn't actually at this recording. It was like on the hottest day of the San Francisco Bay Area and we were having, you know, warnings of power outages and stuff, so I had to 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 bow out. But to to listen to the episode afterwards and hear you talk about scaling and then see like the different ways that 
breadth experience scaling, you know, from, you know, from demo labs, you know, going from two to 200 or, you know, even, you know, potentially more when people are doing labs on demand to just like, you know, doing one or two classes to, oh, I'm going on a class tour to the technology to, you know, that, that you need to have in, in place to do, you know, Office 365 versus Exchange, you know, is is really fascinating to hear somebody who is a practitioner through the various changes, you know, who experienced them firsthand. It's just, it's kind of mind boggling. And uh, it makes me feel old. Well, you should feel old. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I think it goes along really well with the scaling of the mindset you kind of have to have when he talked about Microsoft moving to software as a service and customers not only needing to be on board and understand that, but the partner community needing to be on board and understand that the model is slightly different and it's a good thing and they're still going to make money. You know, that's what, that's what they wanted to know, but that they needed to get on board with the winds of change, the technology wave, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear somebody who went through that change, you know, firsthand having partners, you know, express their concern and frustration and, and whatever. And I absolutely understand that because what if you've built your business on setting up and maintaining that as a, you know, managed service. And then Microsoft comes around and says, Oh, you don't need to do that anymore. You just, you know, pay, you know, some number of dollars per month per person. And, and like that entire business model is just gone. So, you know, it's just, you have to be able to adjust, I guess, is, is the, is the message there. It might be interesting to find out, you know, from somebody who had a business that was based on setting up and managing exchange, like what that change was like. Oh yeah. And uh, how they experienced it. So if you know somebody who was in that position, or maybe if you are somebody, if you'd reach out to us, we'd love to have a discussion about, you know, going through that disruption. The other thing that I noticed was that, um, you know, the, the first time any, any excuse to, to basically ask questions that really benefit us, you and I, like presenting at conferences, like you just, you just jump right in there and, and grab that in-person advice. That was really smart. And I, I really am glad that you did that. Is very, very insightful. And of course, it's not just relevant for us. It should be relevant for everybody, right? That idea that you, you just want to make sure that you're having impact on the people in the audience who are there to listen to that discussion and what you have to say. Even, even just that, you know, make sure that you're paying attention to that impact. Yeah. And I liked what he said about being able to handle questions that come up and making sure you're ready for unexpected situations. We don't always try to prepare ourselves for all the possibilities that could come our way during a, a presentation, whether it's at a conference or something you're doing for people at work. Maybe you're trying to present this project idea to your boss. You, you're going to have to deal with unexpected questions coming your way. I know that's happened to me a number of times where it, it really frazzled me and I wasn't ready for it. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. Being ready for questions that you're not ready for, right? Yeah. Knowing that it's going to happen and then just accepting that you have to be able to adapt to it. 
you know, even just to the point of saying, hey, yeah, I can't actually come up with a good answer, but give me your contact information and I'll follow up with you, right? Yeah. Just just that idea. You know, if you're you're ready to not be ready, then things will go smoother. Maybe that's like the beginner's mindset applied to presentations in a way. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. It's like you expect me to be an authority here and I am about certain parts of this. And, mm-hmm. you know, if by me doing this presentation, it's sparking thoughts and questions in you that I had not anticipated, then one of the, you know, kind of exciting things about doing this is that now that's a two-way conversation and I want to hear about your thoughts and questions that I had not anticipated and incorporate that into what it is that, you know, I'm going to be going on the road with, you know, if you're going on the road with a presentation. So true. I also, that <laughs> you mentioned it already, but that, that mindset shift to software as a service, it actually hadn't occurred to me, even though that is my business now, like how much of a disruption that must have been initially when you have a product that is on-prem and you're making your living from that and somebody just shows up and says oh nobody's going to bother with that anymore we're just going to have that as a service and and the entire you know process of installing it maintaining it customizing it you know all that is just gone don't worry about that anymore i guess that's me saying the exact same thing again in a slightly different context of uh you know SaaS. if somebody has you know, gone through that and transformed their business, you know, again, we'd like to hear about it. And uh, if you're willing to talk about it, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And customers have had to transform to accept the fact that this is a thing that you can't use on premises anymore. And the only way to consume it is a service. So they had to change some things to make that work. And in some cases they may not have wanted to, but that was the only option to continue using that particular thing. It's very true. And it's also true that, you know, if you pay attention to the marketplace, people from the consumer space are being conditioned for that, right? So if every day you go to work and you use Microsoft Outlook and it downloads your, you know, a single copy of your email to the machine that you happen to be sitting at, but then when they use Gmail and they could use it on multiple devices, you know, even at the same time, and it's never dependent on a single machine and there's never, you know, that those people start to like question why their perception of this technology is behind, right? It's like, why am I doing this in this, this outdated way? I'm sure that there's, you know, people who can argue that, you know, it's actually better to, to not have your email as a service. But, um, if you want to uh, engage in that discussion and, and tell us about that, um, uh, please, uh, go ahead and you know, tweet somebody else. Don't, don't tweet us. We actually don't want to, no, 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 no. We'll listen to that discussion. It would be interesting to hear, you know, I think that, you know, it's kind of settled now, but, um, you know, what the arguments people had were, uh, contemporaneously, how people argued against it and how that holds up or doesn't hold up now. Yeah. And if you want to argue, John's good at that. So, (laughs) right. Yeah, I will. I will argue with you in a friendly way. Of course. This is a safe space. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully I'll make it a safe space while we argue. Actually, I I don't actually want to argue with anybody about email as. No, no. Service, but. 
the only other thing I was going to add, John, is I would just say that for listeners out there, I hope you were mindful about part one because part two is going to be really good. But you're going to have to wait. Excellent. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder, even those about email. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, Happy Journeyman, for Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.